know, range from things like Hokey Pokey Anonymous, you know, where you turn yourself around to other things. But I want to focus not so much on Hokey Pokey, but on the last line of the Hokey Pokey. That's what it's all about. It's just a, a silly nonsense line for a silly nonsense childhood song and game. But I want to assure you that the Bible <coughs> says something radically different. Because when we get right down to it, let me ask you this question. What's it all about for you? What's it all about for you? Earlier today, I stopped over to check on Jim and Michelle to see if they were coming. Jim couldn't make it today, but Michelle, glad to have you here. And when I was over there, I was talking to a couple of the guys, and one of the guys misheard me say something, and he chimed into a conversation, and he said, Pastor Bill, are you really 80? And I said, no, I'm not really 80. He said, oh, I thought you said you were 80. I said, no, some days I feel like I'm 80, but no, I'm not 80 years old. And with that, again, again, what we're dealing with is whatever age you're at right now, as we're reminded of regularly, I don't know that any of you are going to live another year. I don't know that I am. And I don't say that to be morbid. I truly don't. I do say that to be realistic. Two weeks ago, I did a funeral. This Friday, I'm doing another funeral. for another resident at Lamb. Last year, I think I did four, and I attended maybe four others, and there were at least three that I, I just couldn't go to because of distance. But last year, I think altogether, it was about 10. The year before that, I think we had a lot, as in maybe the most in recent memory for me, I think we had 13 or 14 children that had lived at Lamb, and either who had left us or who died while they were here. Now again, that's something that ought to be sobering to each of us. Because we're all getting up in age. You don't think you are, but you're getting up in age too. You know, our resident 30-something. You know what I'm saying, though, folks? And the real question of you, uh, that you have to ask is, what is it all about? What's life all about? Why are we here? Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom to understand these truths which are so simple and yet so difficult to put into practice. We ask your help in Jesus' name.
several weeks ago, Jeff asked me, we were talking a little bit, and I made the observation about different chapters in the Bible, and I'm in the process of making a list for him, and it'll be typed out and available to any of you that are interested in what I think at least are some of the most important chapters of the Bible. Chapter 8 of Romans is right near the top, if not the top. It is rich in theology, it is rich in life message, and it teaches us what it's all about. It teaches us of redemption in Christ, that in Christ there is no condemnation. It teaches us that we live in a world that is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God when Jesus returns and calls his church to himself. It teaches us that we don't know how to pray according to God's will, but thanks be to God, the Spirit does that in our behalf. To accomplish his end. You see, God has purpose that the reason everything is here, the reason the moon's up in the sky, the reason the sun is 93 million miles away, the reason that God made each of us with one nose and not three, and two eyes and not five, that God made us all essentially very similar to one another and able to communicate with one another and gave us the ability to bear his image. He did all of those things for his glory. Purpose number one. Purpose number two is he's doing all things for his people. And I told you when we got to this section of Romans 8, for me it was a struggle for a number of years, especially with some of the older saints of God in different churches, where they'd always be kind of like, you know, oh, all things are working for good, Bill. When I'd be moaning and, and crying about something going on bad in my life. Maybe the car broke down. Maybe the... Uh, work situation wasn't going well. Maybe, and I ran into this one time where, you know, our next door neighbor, you know, beat his wife and he was an alcoholic. And those were just some of the things going on in my life. And you'd share those with some of the older saints and they'd, oh, I'll be praying for you, but I want you to remember all things are working for good. And it would be like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I know that, but do you understand what Paul is saying here? In Romans 8. I never said that to them, but perhaps I should have. So let me read again just a few verses and then make some additional comments beyond what we've already remarked. Pick up at verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. Now, looking back on those conversations with those dear saints, it would have been better had they just taken me aside and said to me, Young brother Bill, let's have a cup of coffee. Again, I'm rolling the clock back in some cases 35, 40 years. And let me teach you what Paul is really saying. Because what Paul is really saying is this. God is not saying to the human race in the Bible, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the message of the Bible. Do you understand that? That's an important thing that you need to understand because many gospel tracts have exactly that in something called the four spiritual laws. And it starts out, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me debunk that just briefly. For those that didn't make it in the ark, did God have a wonderful plan for their life? He didn't, did he? He destroyed them. For the Canaanites that had given themselves over to sin when the Israelites went into the promised land. Did he have a wonderful plan for their life? He didn't, did he? For those cities in the New Testament where the disciples were sent into and said, if you go into the city, let your peace rest upon them. And if they don't receive you, let your peace return. And then as you're walking out of the city, take the dust of your sandals and wipe it off as a judgment against them. Did God have a wonderful plan for their life? He certainly didn't. In fact, he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for Tyre and Sidon than for Bethsaida and Cappadocia and other cities that simply rejected the Messiah out of hand. No wonderful plan for their life. See, what Paul is teaching in Romans 8, Verse 28, 29, and 30 is this. Let's just put it this way. He has boundaries. Boundary number one. This message is for Christians only. To whom does this promise apply? Does not apply to everyone, for Paul's statement says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Not everybody loves God. Not everybody is a Christian. Not everybody who calls himself a Christian or goes to church is a Christian. The church that I used to belong to up in Bloomsburg, some of the people would cringe when I would say things like that. They couldn't believe I was saying things like that. And yet, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. 
We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. One of the things that's very simple, and I like to deal in simple. <coughs> Ask yourself. You don't have to answer. You don't have to raise your hand. It's strictly a question that you need to settle between you and God. Do you love God? You either do or you don't. There's no in-between. There's no maybe. There's no shades of gray. It's that black and white. Do you love God? Oh, pastor, I do. Let me ask you a question. How do you know you love God? What does Jesus say the mark of loving God is? It's not, oh, I feel nice and warm and fuzzy about God. God just makes me happy when I think about him. No. Jesus says, if you love me, do something. What, do I, what should I do? He says, keep my commandments. <coughs> I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today who called me. And he was listening to a sermon on the radio. And he said, oh, I'm struggling a little bit. The pastor that was preaching the sermon was talking about that a person who's a Christian must be a slave to Christ. And he said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that phraseology, slave to Christ. What exactly does that mean? I said, what's the difference between a slave and a master? A master gets to call the shots. The slave doesn't get to call the shots. The master says, do this. The slave says, what? Slave doesn't ah, I got to think about that. I don't know if I want to do that. The slave says, I'll do it. Or it doesn't say anything. It simply does it. And I said, very simply, a slave to Christ means you put away doing your thing and you do his thing. Because what it's all about is his thing. Not your thing. Not my thing. It's, are you doing his thing? Are you interested in loving him? Because God says, if you love me, here's my guarantee. Everything in your life, every moment, every action, of all of the events and all of the people in your life will ultimately result in something good for you. But in addition, we need to understand that the good doesn't mean rich. The good doesn't mean healthy. The good doesn't even mean happy. What the good is is God wants you to be like his son. That's what the good is. He wants you to be like his son, conform to the image of Christ. You see, where people get themselves in trouble, and most people do Bible interpretation, what's called proof texting, Proof texting is you take a verse out of context to prove your point. So, 
person says, all things are working for good. Okay, brother and sister, who's telling me that? What does that mean? Because the way you leave it is, I'm having circumstances in my life that I don't particularly like right now, but you're telling me that all I got to do is believe in Jesus and things are going to get better. And that's not what it teaches. Here's what it teaches. Paul doesn't stop there at verse 28. For those whom he foreknow knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God, let me say it as simply as I can. God doesn't want you to continue to be like you. God wants you to be like Jesus. God wants you to be perfect like his son. God wants you to be obedient like his son. God wants you to think his thoughts instead of your thoughts. God wants you to be concerned with everything that's important to him. Said again, God wants you to no longer be like you. He wants you to be like Jesus. And that's what he's doing in terms of, remember, the illustration of weaving the tapestry? Think of your life, how complicated it is. And what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal isn't here and now. The other day, John and I were talking, and John reminded me of an illustration that I've used here before that he saw somebody else use, where you draw a dot, and that little dot represents your life. And then you draw a line from that dot, and that represents all eternity. And when you look at what you are and what God has made you, <clears throat> we tend to think like this. God has made me body and soul. No, God has made you soul with a body. A soul that will never die. A soul that will only change for the good. A soul that will only become like Christ, ultimately. A body that will be glorified. But the most important part of you isn't this. The most important part of you is what's on the inside that will never die. And when you think of what life is about, here's the little dot. That's where we're living. The line that goes on forever, that's eternity. That's eternity. So that Newton could write in Amazing Grace, the very last stanza, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. He's saying 10,000 years is nothing. Nothing. Because it goes on forever. And God wants it to go on forever for you to be in the likeness of his son in the same way that we were created. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. True knowledge, true righteousness, true holiness. That's the primary component of the image of God.
perfect, true knowledge, true righteousness, true holiness. He doesn't want you to be the same way he is. My wife doesn't want me to be the same old Bill. And we've talked about that. And I don't want her to be the same old Ann. And we've talked about that. There are things that we both need to work on. And sometimes it's hard when we point those things out. Isn't it? But when you start thinking about it, God's doing the same thing. Except he's doing it this way. He's not saying, let me talk to you about some things in your life. <laughs> what he's doing is he's ordering your footsteps and he's ordering the events of your life to get your attention, isn't he? To get your attention. A financial crisis. A health crisis. A loved one who all of a sudden is gone. A situation that you thought was going to turn out well. And it didn't turn out well at all. And you look at it and you say, why is God doing that? Again, so that I become more and more like his son. Because the third boundary is this. God makes good use of bad things. Let me say that again, and let me just read a short paragraph. God makes good use out of bad things, or the bad things, or the bad events, or the bad people in our lives. Are the things used in our lives by God for this good and necessarily good in themselves or only in their effect? The answer is the latter. In other words, this text does not teach <coughs> that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, or any other such thing is itself good. I'll give you an example. I'm more patient as a result of working at LAM than I would be if I didn't have to work, or than I would be if I didn't work at LAM. And I know that because I know what my life has been. And they, there are times that in the past, I know how I would have gone off on somebody. I would have hit them. If I didn't hit them, I would have been extremely vulgar with them. I would have tried to hatch a plan to affect and impact and maybe even destroy their reputation. And there are times now, almost weekly, that I'm confronted with something, something usually stupid. And it can go pretty wacky and pretty crazy pretty quickly. Earlier today, I got a phone call from the boss. <laughs> Could you go over to such and such a place? One of our residents who moved in is moving out, immediately moving out. And he has a couple of people with him. And I go down there and I introduce myself to one of the people. 
and immediately that person wants to get in my face and he's already gotten in the face of one of the other staff. And he's ready to mix it up. And I'm thinking to myself, is this another one of these situations where one of us any second is going to be calling 911? And sometimes it does. Now I say that because again, in other days, earlier in my life, how I would have dealt with that was vastly different than how I dealt with it today. But how I dealt with it today comes a whole lot more automatically than it did 20 years ago. And why is that? I hope, in part, because to some measure, God is building patience into me as a result of some trying situations when they occur. I think about some of you. I think of some of the circumstances that I've dealt with, with residents at Lamb, or family members, or myself, with regard to health situations. And sometimes health situations can be real crises. And then other times, if you take the time to pray about, Lord, my life is in your hands. My life, or this person's life is in your hands. Far more calming, isn't it, than stressing out about it. If you really believe that it's coming. The text doesn't teach that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, or any other such thing is itself good. On the contrary, these things are evil. Hatred is not love. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. The world is filled with evil. But what the text teaches, and that is important, is that God uses these things and others to affect his good ends for his people. God brings good out of the evil, and the good, as we saw, is our conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, is this. God wants you and I to be knowing-oriented rather than feeling-oriented. And I'm referring in part um, to a brother that I use from time to time, James Montgomery Boyce, from his excellent commentary on Romans. And he writes this. The fourth and final boundary for the meaning of this text, and again, we've covered the first three, being that this is for Christians only. God's goal is for us to be like Christ. God uses, or makes rather, good use out of bad things. And then finally, he wants us to be more knowing-oriented than feeling-oriented. The fourth and final boundary for the meaning of this text comes in answer to still another question. What is our relationship to what God is doing in these circumstances? The answer Paul gives is that we know, he begins, we know, <coughs> excuse me, that all things are working for good. He's not saying and we feel like everything's working for our good. That's an important point. 
He does not say we feel all things to be good. Often we don't feel like God is being good at all in these circumstances. And I can't tell you how many times when a person's in the thick of a difficult circumstances, a bad diagnosis, bad financial news, something happening to their car, their assets, their house. We feel exactly the opposite. We feel that we're being ground down or destroyed by God. God, why are you doing this? Why doesn't God love me? And it's not even that we see the good. Most of the time we don't perceive the good that God is doing, what God is doing, or how he might be bringing good out of the evil. But the text does say he knows that all things are working for our good. Forget the feeling. Forget the feeling. Look past the things that you see. Look at the things you can't see. Turn as we close to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> this is a good summary, I think, of what Paul is saying here. And we've read this before. Let me back up to verse 7. He's talking about the treasure of the gospel, the good news of God, the very words of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that our surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are all, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh for death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I speak. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And then focus on these words. Learn these words. Memorize these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's exactly what he's saying to the Romans, isn't it? That these present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glories that will be revealed. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You can either focus on the dot, and like the old beer commercial, you only go around once, so you better grab all the gusto you can. Or you can live for eternity and appreciate that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. That the good is that he wants you to be like his son, Jesus. The choice is yours. But don't go according to feelings. Go according to what you know. And what you know ought to be based on not how you feel, but on God's truth. That's what I wanted to share with you today. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, to the measure that we've been accurate, may you seal these things to our hearts. To the measure that we have not been, we ask that you would help us to forget them quickly. As we continue to study, help us to remember that all things in our lives, for those who love you among us here, are indeed working, not only for your glory, but also for our good, individually and corporately. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.